this this book was dedicated to my friend Georgine, who passed away a few years ago. Um, we met when she was in her late 80s, and I knew her until she passed when she was 90. And I, it, that friendship taught me how much I was missing and how many incorrect assumptions I made about what age actually means. Because I thought, you know, she's, I thought, thought she was the coolest thing in the whole world. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I speak with influencers from all walks of life and all over the world who are contributing to the common good in all kinds of interesting ways. Contributing to the common good in even the smallest of ways is one of the scientifically proven ways we can age with vitality and deep contentment. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. My goal is to share optimism about aging and introduce you to guests who will inspire you to live with zest. And to find out more about this podcast, my web courses, and my book, not just chatting, how to become a master podcast interviewer, hop on over to zestfulaging.com. And while you're there, sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Insider, where you will get behind the scenes looks at upcoming episodes and other fun tidbits, including pictures of my crazy puppy Frankie tromping in the snow. And if you love the podcast, I'd be grateful if you shared it with your friends. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker. Find out more at judybanker.com. Ever wonder what the host of Zestful Aging does when she's not podcasting? Creating one-of-a-kind earrings, of course. I've just opened an Etsy shop called Zestful Design, no S, and it showcases my fun, comfortable, and zesty polymer earrings. These earrings are fun to make and fun to wear. So check out my new shop, Zestful Design, on Etsy. Well, I am super, super excited for our interview today. Uh, we're going to be talking to Grace Bonney, who's the founder of Design Sponge, a daily website dedicated to the creative community, which reached nearly 2 million readers per day for 15 years. She's been called the Martha Stewart for Millennials by the New York Times, has been featured on Good Morning America, The Martha Stewart Show, The Chew, American Public Radio, and more. Today we're going to talk about her brand new creation, her book, Collective Wisdom, which profiles the lives and advice of women over 50 from all walks of life. Welcome to the show, Grace. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Um, we have a lot in common, and I, I just so appreciate the journey that you have been on. You know, you started in your early mid-20s to, to create this gigantic uh, website. Um, so much, uh, so many followers, so much interest, and now you are doing something so entirely different than posting content and getting a lot of uh, internet response. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Your life has changed so much since then. <laughs> you know, it, it really has. And I, like, I guess I can start at the very beginning. So I, 
I went to um, NYU for a few years and I studied journalism. And then I transferred back to a college in Virginia where I'm from called William and Mary. And I studied fine art and I graduated with a fine art degree. And when I graduated, I moved right back to New York City and I started working in the music industry, which I didn't enjoy. And I ended up working in a design PR firm. And it was this really lovely way of combining my love of writing and my love of, of covering topics and people and also just my love of art. And while I was there, I realized that so many of the things that were of interest to me as I think a 21 year old at that time just weren't being covered in the mainstream design world. They weren't on television, they weren't in magazines. So I started a blog called Design Sponge, which I would have named quite differently if I knew it was going to become my full-time job for, for 15 it is years. An it is an interesting <laughs> name. Like, like what? Tell me about that. I'm sure you've been asked a million yeah. times. I mean, Where did a, that come it's from? A, it's a short, boring story. My mom used to call me a sponge because I just, when I get interested in something, I kind of obsessively <sighs> research it. So uh -huh. I just, as a fun aside, called called myself a design sponge at the time. So I started that as a, you know, a fun side project to do on my lunch breaks. And I think it was really a case of right place, right time, right voice. And there were maybe one or two other design blogs. And I had been, you know, writing about the things that I loved that I was seeing around town in Brooklyn where I was living. And it just kind of took off and we a couple of us got scooped up into a big story in the New York Times and so we've been mm. you know early adopter status mm. really changes the the longevity of something in a way that you just can't replicate all the time and so I really benefited from being just an earlier blogger and it grew from being a very personal side project to a full-time job to something that employed a small team of people and then eventually allowed me to write books and start podcasts and write a newspaper and all of these different things that just creatively for me were incredibly fulfilling. But mm -hmm. over time- And you were in your oh, 20s at yeah. the time. Oh, baby, a total, total baby. <laughs> had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I benefit from a, a heck of a lot of privilege of being a white person, an able-bodied person, a person who grew up with, you know, no school debt, which is a big deal. And I don't think I even realized that until I was much mm -hmm. older. And I, I was able to just kind of put myself into this entirely creative pursuit without a ton of financial need because it, it mm -hmm. the site, you know, produced more than enough money for me to comfortably live as a single person um, or someone who could support themselves. And, you know, eventually it grew to support a few other people. And so we never grew much larger than that, despite the readership being quite large. I made decisions the entire time from a creative perspective, which is not the most profitable way to make decisions, but <laughs> it, it did keep me connected to the site in a way that I, looking back now, I'm so glad that I was because I, I have a lot of friends who kind of burned out a little earlier because they really committed to making their websites you know, a larger machine of sorts, which is totally fine. It's just not how I made my decisions. So I think I, I maintained this creative connection to that space for over a decade. But there was something around the 10 year mark where there was a pivot. And I think it was me being in my 30s versus my 20s. I had gone through a divorce, I had come out, and a lot of big life changes happened. And I, I found myself far more interested in the people I was writing about mm -hmm. versus mm -hmm. the things they made or even the places they lived. And I wanted to have these serious conversations. And that turned into my second book in the company of women and eventually turned into this book. And while I was writing this book, Collective Wisdom, I 
the conversations just were a much more personal tone and they were deeply vulnerable. You know, they were happening during a pandemic and so many of them took on this therapeutic feel that it was actually those conversations in this book that inspired me to apply for graduate school. And now I'm studying at Syracuse to become a marriage and family therapist. So that's, that is the medium length version of my journey. <laughs> that's the, the medium length for. So I'm curious, it sounds like you're very uh, checked in with what you need, which is great for, um, for all of us. I'm wondering, did these pivots, as you call them, do you think that they were a function of age um, or a function of some of the challenges uh, that you were undergoing, a divorce coming out? What brought you to a new place? I, it may not be either or, but I'm wondering because 30 is very different than 23. Yes. yes. I remember very distinctly at 30, feeling as if there was an almost chemical shift in my body composition. Everything felt different. And I I still to this day don't quite understand what it was, but I think at this point, turning 30 remains one of the greatest like awakening moments for myself. And I realized how many decisions I had made that were based fully in everyone else's perception of myself except my own. And I think that's a really common thing that happens to a lot of people, especially people who are raised in the South like I was, where People who are raised as women are taught to, you know, be palatable versions of themselves for everybody um, as a way of, you know, finding happiness and success. And, you know, some of that was inauthentic and some of that was authentic. So I spent a lot of time in therapy really trying to figure out what percentage of who I had become was my own and what percentage was something I was doing for other people. And that took me years in therapy to really unpack. And then I think all of the changes that happened afterwards were very much ripple effects of that decision to come out and get divorced because I started to open my eyes in ways that I didn't even know they were closed. And being a part of a marginalized community kind of connected me to other people from marginalized communities. It made me pay attention to larger issues of race and class and disability and the more that my social circle changed, the more that my perspective on life changed. And I think it's what it's allowed me to kind of continue to broaden the way I view things. And every time I kind of expand that point of view, a little part of me shifts. And so I think I've, I've learned to kind of trust that shift and just follow it where it takes me. You know, I, I love that you talked about privilege. I think that's mm -hmm. so important. But it occurs to me that in some way you have your one foot in both camps being in a marginalized community, also having a serious chronic illness, um, and really appreciating, understanding and identifying with that challenge, and also realizing, wow, I've, I've been very fortunate. Mm -hmm. How do you reconcile that? It's, you know, it's an ongoing process. I think it's something that, I mean, as a therapist, I feel like you probably know this better than anybody. Like, you know, learning and unpacking privilege and understanding your own internal biases towards things, it's just, it's a, it's a lifelong commitment. And it's something that we'll always be doing. And I don't think I honestly did any of that until I was probably 28 or 29. And I sat down with a friend um, who just kind of, very lovingly encouraged me to look at my own behavior and my own responsibility in terms of discussing the issues of a lack of inclusivity and a lack of equity in the design community. And I, I talked about these concepts as, as if they were external to me. 
And she very lovingly was like, you know, your behavior plays into this and you have a position of power, you have a platform, you have responsibility, you need to look at how you're contributing to this. And I was like a light switch on moment for me. And I just, even Mm -hmm. if I turn it back off, I can't unsee what she helped (laughs) me see. I see. Wow. That's really fascinating. Hi, listeners. A quick interruption to tell you about a powerful tool I actually rediscovered after 15 years that will help you with stress, anxiety, and depression. I'm talking about the Meditations from Health Journeys created by trauma expert Bella Ruth Napperstack. When I had to have major surgery many years ago, I listened to these meditations and it was enormously helpful. Health Journeys meditations are a little different than the -the run-of-the-mill meditations that you can find on apps. They're scientifically created and are used in over three thousand hospitals. I highly recommend them and I use them myself. You can go to ZestfulAging.com or NicoleChristina.com and you will see a direct link. I hope you find them helpful and I'm interested in your experience. Now back to the show. And then I saw that um, another really important thing that happened is a friendship that you Mm. made uh, while you were volunteering in upstate New York. Is that what sparked your interest in intergenerational, the value of intergenerational friendships? It really did. This this book was dedicated to my friend Georgine, who passed away a few years ago. Um, We met when she was in her late 80s, and I knew her until she passed when she was 90. And I, it, that friendship taught me how much I was missing and how many incorrect assumptions I made about what age actually means. Because I thought, you know, she's, I thought, thought she was the coolest thing in the whole world. <laughs> and my wife, Julia, and I were so intimidated by her. And we got to know each other better over the years of volunteering. We eventually got to pick her up and drive her every week. And in those moments of getting to be at her house, getting to meet her cats, helping her take care of her plants, I, we became like real friends, which I did not think was a possibility because of, you know, the nearly 55 years that were between our ages. And I just assumed I would have absolutely nothing to bring to that equation. And that, yes, I, I was just sitting there, you know, absorbing all of this just wonder and perspective from this person I admired so much. And I thought like, I don't bring anything to this. So I never even thought to pursue that as a friendship. And it wasn't until she passed away and we went to her funeral and I saw her family had laid out all of these photos from our volunteering times together as a part of the story of her life. And I just burst into tears and I thought like, oh, this was real. Like this was real to her Mm -hmm. too. It wasn't just me. Mm -hmm. And I've become friendly with her extended family still. And they're so kind to remind me, you know, she, she thought of you both as friends and she really appreciated what you brought into her life. And I, it fundamentally changed me, not only to turn away from the internet um, as my primary source of social support, but to really realize and try to unpack how much internalized ageism I was living with, because I just assumed there's this gap between myself and anyone who's significantly older, and it's it could not be further from the truth. I, I think the other piece that's so interesting is uh, from what you you 
mention, she couldn't care less about design sponge. <laughs> she had no idea what I did. And <laughs> she had no idea. And so like, it, it, it almost seems like, you know, you were a celebrity to many. But for her, it was just like, what are we doing today at the church? You know, how are we volunteering together? What's the job in front of us? And it's a very different kind of relationship. It is. And I think it really taught me that the volunteering, that particular volunteering job really taught me an important lesson, which is just the value of having friends in different spheres of your life who do not know you or associate you with something that maybe a large number of other people associate you with. And I hadn't realized how limiting that was. I had only seen, you know, that the privilege and the benefit that came with working at a website that had such a public facing element and working with Georgine, she was like, I, she, I mean, not only did she not care, but she just really was not in the concept of like running this blog on the internet. It just all was quite foreign to her. So we never talked about it. But we talked about everything else in life. We talked about politics. We talked about food. We talked about community. We talked about friends. And it taught me how unimportant the work piece of my like identity pie was. And I think I had made it mm -hmm. this huge percentage of my life. And then I just realized, okay, well, well, when I'm 90, will that still feel as important? And I realized how unimportant that was. And it's, I've shifted the way I live completely. And I'm deeply grateful to her for that reminder. You know, maybe this is not a fair comment, but given your notoriety, you're very humble about, listen, I, this is what I produced. It's now in the Library of Congress. Okay, now I'm going to think about this, or now I'm going to be open to this view. How, how does one stay grounded when you are on Good Morning America, you know, and, and some of your, some of the people that you've interviewed in this book, Elizabeth Gilbert, you know, are, they're internationally beloved people. How do you stay grounded and remind yourself of where your value lies? Hmm. I think there's a couple things. I think therapy is a big part of my life and constantly remembering that we are not the work that we do and we are not the people that people perceive us to be. Um, I mean, I've gotten, yeah, I've gotten to meet a lot of really interesting high profile people and that's when i also figure out they're real people too <laughs> and you know <laughs> I, I don't I, this is not a, in being applied to elizabeth gilbert who i don't actually know um that well at all but a uh, lots of high profile people i've gotten to interview for books and projects like they have mm -hmm. their own problems they have their own quirks they're not like perfect people so i think actually getting to meet some of my heroes taught me that you know, most people are just pretty normal people, I'm sure, with the exception of like, people who are presidents and things like that. But for the most part, we all we all have our issues, we're all imperfect. And I think a big part of maintaining that sense of perspective is what I benefited is what I got from Design Sponge, which was 24 seven around the clock feedback from humans who felt I was doing something wrong. And that was exhausting for a while and because I saw it as something I had to defend. And it wasn't until probably maybe eight or nine years into Design Sponge that I realized for the most part, this feedback is actually really useful way for me to expand my point of view. And instead of seeing it as a personal attack, if I kind of 
I don't know, pull myself back, think about whether or not I agree with this feedback and then allow it to either pass through me and not, not be something that's relevant or to actually let it be something that changes me for the better. I, I don't know, that, that fundamentally changed me. And then when I spoke very openly about wanting to be held accountable for a lot of the issues around diversity and equity that were important to me and are important to me, people did just that. So I think if you ask to be held responsible, people will do that to you. And so to this mm -hmm. day, you know, my DMs on Instagram are full of people who say, you know, you said something and it rubbed me the wrong way. And I want to point this out because I thought you might be receptive to hearing that. And mm -hmm. I could not ask for a more gracious gift from people. And especially if it's worded that way, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's particularly appreciative when it's not like an all caps, but... <laughs> <laughs> with nasty emojis <laughs> exactly yeah. or just a unfollow mm -hmm. but um yeah i think people hold me accountable and i don't i don't think that's going to last forever as i lead an increasingly less and less public life but i think i now see that in the form of peer groups and i see that now with the cohort of people i'm learning with in graduate school and we all feel very differently about a lot of parts of life and so I have really had to learn that balance of speaking up for what I believe in and then also recognizing that there is not one universal truth that just doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. it, it makes me think of uh, your mom's uh, wisdom in, in talking about you being a sponge because you're <laughs> still a sponge. Yes, I hope I am forever. <laughs> So how do you imagine after you get your your graduate degree in marriage and family therapy, what do you imagine your life will look like? I have no idea. And for the first time, that's actually really exciting versus being terrifying. I can see myself. I mean, I think being a part of the LGBTQ community, that's a huge part of my life. And I, I think there are still, even where I live, which I consider to be a very kind of progressive community in the Hudson Valley, there's still a shocking lack of therapists who can work with families and kids who are in the LGBTQ spectrum. So I think that's something I can see myself doing. I also just think I love research. I love that sort of thing. And so I could also see myself going into doing some research related to that field. I don't know. I could see myself doing a lot of different things. And I'm very aware that I have to trust the process and that not even being done with my first year, I probably have no business <laughs> guessing where I will end up after I'm licensed. So we'll, are you we'll finding the material thought provoking? Oh, yes. Thought and mm -hmm. argument provoking. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I think I am someone in in my cohort who is probably I, I think it's good that I'm there because I point out a lot of things that I think are maybe being glossed over. But I also think I'm probably the annoying person in class who's like, actually, I think this is tied to ableism. <laughs> Um, uh -huh, okay. but, but I like that, you know, I came into this with a lot of my own biases, um, in particular, like my experiences with Christianity, my experiences with military groups, having grown up in a very conservative military town. And those have been really important things for me to unpack with members of my cohort and who are now my friends who come from those communities who have been really helpful reminders that you just, you cannot lump people together in these monolithic mm. groups. And so... You know, I right now I'm just thoroughly enjoying the discourse of class, like processing from different points of view is fascinating. And I can watch myself realize how wrong I am in real time and then be like, wow, I never thought of that from that perspective. And then just watch my, you know, you just watch that like 
telescope view just constantly widen. And I just, I want to do that forever. And it's one of the reasons I chose this field is I love the requirement to continue to learn. I think that's wonderful. Is there any particular reading you've particularly resonated with? Any books or uh, theoretical orientations? We, you know, we've done a fair amount of theory. Um, and I'm, I'm always drawn to to sort of postmodern theory that connects social oppression and how that affects people's lives. That's, that's a big part of how I view everything. But the biggest reaction I had was actually to a book we were assigned in our first semester, which is, I'm, I'm guessing you're familiar with The Family Crucible. I don't know. It's a- Yes. Okay, yep. yes. We were assigned to read The Family Crucible, which is a in-depth story of one family's journey through family therapy with Carl Whitaker. And I had a very strong reaction to it and not a positive one. And I went into everyone's, you know, interpretation of that book and it was, you know, 20 people all saying they learned so much and it was so wonderful. And then I was sitting there fuming, pointing out all the times that this male therapist was sexualizing his underage patients and felt comfortable writing that in a book and comparing their attractiveness to each other. (laughs) And Mm. I pointed that out and it was like a record scratch moment. And I realized, oh, so much of this field is going to be finding that balance between independent thought and questioning and then also accepting that you know everyone's going to have their own take on something but i'm realizing that so much of the text we learn from has been written by straight white cis men and a lot of Mm -hmm. that has been unpacked from a gender perspective so far but it has not really been unpacked enough and even most of the theories we learn are still rooted in a white person's you know middle american white person's experience so have I, you read any Mnuchin yet? Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> I bet he sets your hair on fire. I well, I remember finding out that, that the Wiltwick School, where he did a lot of his work, is about 10 minutes from where I live um, in, oh, I in a Sopus, New York. And I was like, I can't believe this is it. This was here. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. I think so much of the history of, of any or I guess the, the learning of any field is about realizing that a lot of the information you initially learn, you kind of have to throw out a little bit of it or just question, mm-hmm. or just question a lot of it. And I, I really enjoy the process of questioning and trying to pick apart what's useful and what is rooted in something that is not helpful at all. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's, that's very well put. Um, do you want to... Uh, reflect for our audience anything more about intergenerational relationships and having honest conversations with with our elders and even people who are much younger than we are? Yes, absolutely. I think one of the things that's come up the most in now that the book is out and I've been touching base with all the women who are in the book and having conversations about their experience and what it feels like to be in this, a lot of people have said, I feel, I feel less alone. And I really appreciate the way that this has kind of brought us together. And I think that's one of the most insidious parts of ageism is that siloing that happens. And it, it can make people feel as if you don't have something to contribute to a relationship or to a community at large. And I wanted this book to just be flying in the face of that assumption, because whether you are younger and trying to find a friend who is slightly older, or if you are in the reverse, I, I think externalizing that fear as just, you know, ageism and not anything actually rooted in reality is really helpful because 
so many of the women who have lived through extraordinarily difficult situations, whether that's people fleeing, you know, you know, Mabuba, who is this incredible Iranian activist in the book, cannot return to her home country because she would be ordered into prison and possibly death. And when you're thinking about people who have survived those circumstances and have not only survived but thrived in completely new countries, that's because of community. She found community and she continues to find community and she continues to just ignore the fact that maybe society would say she shouldn't seek out younger friends because of her age. And I just, I hope that people see that ageism is something that is outside of us, that it's not rooted in reality. And if we just kind of bravely ignore that for a moment, that connection between people, regardless of age, is not only easier than we realize than it is, but it is infinitely more powerful. It's just, mm. it's such a sense of perspective. And to be able to connect, I think in the book, it's... um. The writer Julia Alvarez said, we are all beads in the necklace of these generations. And when I think about how powerful it feels to recognize that you are not alone, but you are a part of a long string of people who are connected, that is an image I hope everyone yeah. takes home with them because it is so, so powerful. What a beautiful uh, visual that is. I love that. It has been such a pleasure to speak with you today, Grace, and I really um, am highly recommending your lovely book. Can you tell people where they can find out more about what you're doing these days? Of course. So I'm still fairly active at my old design sponge handle on Instagram. Um, so you can find all of my links for the book there. You can find anything I'm up to. I talk about therapy stuff. I talk about my obsession with birding. It's all there. I, I, I kind of still, mm. still live at Design Sponge on Instagram. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, you'll have to check out all the birds in the Oakwood Cemetery <laughs> in Syracuse because yes. oh, there's a whole hawk family that yes. are <laughs> they're often there to greet the dog walkers. So it has uh, been a pleasure and best of luck in your studies. And um, perhaps I'll run into you at Mellow Velo or one of the other cafes um, around town. I hope so. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. It's no secret that everyone's feeling pretty restless and unsettled right now. Our lives are upside down and the future is feeling pretty uncertain. But if you're anything like me, organizing my stuff can help me feel a little calmer. It's something I can do to help me feel a little more in control and in charge of my own life. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And too much stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used up. We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different 
confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long exploratory you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest. (laughs) 